This is a Tech Briefs Media Group podcast. Welcome to another Who's Who at NASA podcast. For our November Who's Who interview, I spoke with Al Bowers, Chief Scientist at Armstrong Flight Research Center. Al Bowers is the Program Manager of Preliminary Research Aerodynamic Design to Lower Drag, or Prandtl-D. The project's researchers validated elements of a boomerang-shaped wing design that could greatly improve the efficiency of future aircraft. Just to set the stage, what is this new wing design? Um, complicated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it turns out that um, I set out about, uh, it was over 20 years ago, to try and solve the problem of flying wings. Uh-huh. And, what, and it was sort of, it was meant as a, I'm sorry, go ahead. And so, uh, yeah, what were those those problems? So, um, classically, flying wings have been very touchy. Um, they, they are not very stable. They're difficult to control. Um, and being able to um, capitalize on the promise of the drag reduction that's there um, requires a great deal of, um, it seems like there's an excessive amount of technology, the, the, the uh, flight controls, the feedbacks, the redundancy management. Mm-hmm. The, the, I, it, it just seemed excessive to me that, that this was necessary in order to solve this problem. I mean, it's, it appears so simple, and then the solution becomes so complex in order to be able to do that. Uh-huh. And... Um, so it, it turns out that I studied the problem fairly extensively, and uh, this was a background task. It was never, it was never a, a primary area of research for me until the last four years or so. Uh-huh. And um, it was about uh, um, seven or eight years ago that I had a fairly significant breakthrough analytically. And I was able to align several pieces, and one of the key components was a, a paper that is normally not associated with flying wings, and that was written by uh, Ludwig Prandtl back in 1933. Okay. And then, um, of course, there's the, the research that was done by the Hortons, uh, the Horton brothers, between about 1934 and 1950. And then, again, there was another uh, critical paper Again, not usually associated with flying wings, but it was significant um, by R.T. Jones, the the NACA and later NASA uh, senior staff scientist up at NASA Ames. And uh, those three people, it turns out, were talking about the same thing without realizing they were talking about the same thing. So what was that that inspired this wing design? So the, the big... The big piece here is that we've been doing this all wrong. There's a, a, a very fundamental um, thing that aerodynamicists are taught early on, which is that the, uh, the load across the wing, between the wingtips, mm-hmm. um, should be distributed elliptically. And this would result in the minimum drag for that wing. And, and it, this is in all the textbooks. You, you can find it almost any, any standard text on aerodynamics will tell you this is the answer. Uh-huh. It turns out that the, all three of these guys um, had different pieces of the puzzle, but they didn't. They, they, and, and the crazy thing was that 
um, Horton actually talked with Prandtl, and Prandtl and Jones also talked, but it turns out they were they never talked about this one thing that they all had in common. And so I, I'm going to go back to the Prandtl paper, which was the first one, which which uh, was the genesis of of most of the work. Uh -huh. What Prandtl did was he went back to the elliptical load and he said, what if instead of holding the wingspan constant, what if I held the amount of structure constant? So in other words, once you pick the size of the structure and the size of the payload and, and everything that you're going to carry, what's the minimum drag that you can get out of that amount of material? Uh -huh. And it turns out it's a different answer. And this was the part that was um, very difficult for me to grasp initially because I didn't believe it, right? I, I'd been trained to not uh, believe, I, I mean, elliptical was the answer. Sure, and why do you so, think, uh, just to digress a little bit, why do you think that has been such a, a misconception? Um, because uh, the elliptical span load was derived by Prandtl in uh -huh. about 1918. It was published in 1920. And this is the, the first answer. It's the be-all answer. It's the, it's, the, it's the one that Prandtl believed was the answer. Uh -huh. And when Prandtl wrote his second paper in 1933, he said, oh, this is an interesting result. And then he never did anything with it for the rest of his life. Interesting. And, and in fact, no one else had either. And so this paper is very obscure. It's very difficult to find. Um, and... Uh, it, but it is the key without question because there's this amazing result that comes out of it. It turns out what he says is that the span load should be bell-shaped. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's, it's flat at the center and then it tapers to the tip. And it, just as it reaches the tip, it, it tapers out and flattens out. And the, the curve is absolutely flat when it gets to the wingtip. And... There was another guy that was here at, at uh, Edwards Air Force Base down on the Air Force side. He loved to watch bird flight. Uh -huh. And this was the piece that um, he was talking about how birds didn't carry very much load at their wingtip. And I go, yeah, they've got feathers out there, you know, and, and so you can't carry very much load. And all of a sudden I realized that this paper that I had been reading by Prandtl was associated with bird flight. Gotcha. And, and so... And so here is the trick. If you put this, and by the way, the, the shape of the curve looks very bell-shaped, mm -hmm. right? We're all, all familiar with the bell curve, what that looks like. Yep. And that's exactly what the load needs to be between the wingtips um, for this new Prandtl solution. And it turns out Horton had been doing it for something else, and then Jones had been doing it for a slightly different thing than, than Prandtl had. But they were really the same thing. And that none of them realized that they, they, they were all connected. Mm -hmm. And um, what happens is there's this, the result of the lift across the wing results in what we call downwash behind the wing. And so the elliptical load has a constant downwash behind the wing. And this is the, actually the thing that aerodynamicists derive in the math that comes out of the elliptical span load. And, and there's this misperception that you have to have downwash in order to have lift. So here's the thing about fluids. If you can imagine a balloon, and if you push in on a balloon in one place, it pops out in another place. Uh -huh. 
So this new Bell fan load does exactly this. It pushes the air down in the center. So you have downwash in the center. But at the wingtips, the flow goes up. And you have upwash at the wingtips. And it turns out that this upwash, um, this wash, whether if it's downwash, it rotates the lift aft. And so there's this horizontal component to the lift. And so if you increase, imagine for a moment that you, you have constant downwash all the way across the wing. And so you have more lift on one, you want to roll the airplane. So you create more lift on one side and less lift on the other at the wingtip. Mm -hmm. And so more lift increases that horizontal component that's pointed back because of the downwash. And so when you lift that wing up, the aircraft yaws, in other words, the nose goes to the wrong side. The roll is correct, but the yaw is wrong. And so we put a vertical tail on the back end of the airplane. And Wilbur Norville Wright, by the way, were the ones that discovered that and invented that. Mm -hmm. And we still do that problem the exact same way, which is what all the aeronautics textbooks teach you. But it turns out that with this new Prandtl span load, in the center of the wing, indeed, the, the lift rotates, the, the, the downwash rotates the lift back. But at the tips, because the flow becomes upwash, this lift vector is now rotated forward. Mm -hmm. And so because the, 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 the lift vector is rotated forward at the tips, if you increase the lift on one side, you roll correctly and you yaw correctly at the same time. Mm -hmm. And this is what birds have been doing all along. I see what you're saying, where it's both uh, it's a simple uh, discovery and then a complicated explanation for, it, for, for what it does. Exactly. But the result here is, now this is the really cool thing. When Prandtl published his result, he got 11% less drag than the elliptical span load for the same amount of structure. Uh -huh. So once you pick the amount of structure, and it doesn't matter how much structure that is, once you pick that amount of structure, the minimum drag solution is this bell span load. And oh, by the way, now you can get rid of the vertical tail and all that weight and all that drag and all that complexity, and you're doing everything with the wing alone. And so it becomes the perfect solution for the flying wing. Mm -hmm. And so what is, what is possible now, and uh, why is this, this wing shape so valuable? Um, so right off the bat, the wing just by itself is 11% more efficient. Mm -hmm. So if I could swap out wings on airplanes, and this is actually the way they're, they're built, um, if I could just replace the wing, I'd save 11%. Uh -huh. Okay? But now here's the, the additional piece. You can get rid of the vertical tail. That's a number like 30%. Mm-hmm. So that 30% on top of that 11% saving, okay? So for an airframe, you're now talking a number that's in the 40-plus percent range of being able to save on drag. Mm -hmm. And this, this impacts carbon footprint. This impacts range. Uh, this makes electric propulsion and all these other things much more possible. And so you're, you're talking a number in the range of 40 to 50 percent. Right. But, but there's this additional piece that's out there. And if you can imagine that fans and compressors and propellers are all just rotating wings, 
And because you now have this thrust at the tip of the wing of the blade, imagine the torque that you have to put in in order to create that thrust. Mm-hmm. So the amount of power that you're putting in, that torque, is reduced because of where I'm developing the lift. It's closer to the center than it is to the tip. And so I get the same amount of power, and this number is, is about 15%. Or for 15% less power, I get the same thrust. Now you throw that on top of that other number, and the number gets really big. Right. In fact, scary big. And this is the amount of energy that we're throwing away simply because we're going back to this old method, this first derivation of what's the minimum drag. I, I read, too, that this could potentially be used on Mars airplanes. Can you talk about that? Um, so now you have this incredibly simple integrated solution that doesn't require all sorts of complexity in order to make it stable and controllable. Mm-hmm. I, it's, it's naturally stable. It's naturally easily controlled. It's what birds do, and they do it naturally, just like, you know, when you and I walk down the hall. I mean, it, it, it's not something that you consciously have to do. It's the same thing with birds when they fly. Uh-huh. And so now, if you can imagine that you could take one of these and make it really small and make it out of a material that you could roll up, and then you could fit into a really small container. We're, we're trying to fit it into a CubeSat if we can get away with it. Mm-hmm. And so when Curiosity, the rover, went to Mars three years ago, um, JPL had to carry 57 kilograms of ballast on board the, the aeroshell in order to spin-stabilize the spacecraft during the cruise portion to Mars. Right. When they got to Mars, they ejected that ballast. And then they, they did their whole seven minutes of terror, and you know, which was just an amazing thing that they did. And, and they landed on Mars, and, and, and that, that rover's just been sending great science back ever since. But I was thinking about that 57 kilograms of ballast. I'd love to be a couple of kilograms of that ballast going to Mars. Sure. And, and if we could find a way to enter the Martian atmosphere, and then while we're still hanging under the parachute at, I don't know, maybe 15,000 feet or 12,000 feet above the surface, just jettison this little rolled-up airplane that would suddenly spring out, you could put some real simple science experiments on there. You could get the, the profile of the atmosphere of Mars right down to the surface. Because right now all we have are the measurements made by the rovers themselves sitting on the surface. We could now actually see what the the atmosphere is like descending through the Martian atmosphere. We could potentially be able to tell what the the radiation levels are descending through the atmosphere of Mars. Or perhaps we could even do video from the little airplane and video one of the landing sites that are going to be where the astronauts will land on Mars. Because right now, MRO, which did a really outstanding job of mapping the Mars surface, their resolution of the surface is about a meter. If we could get down to the centimeter level of being able to resolve what the surface is like. Now, it doesn't need to be that good for landing on Mars, but you'd like to know if you're going to land on half-meter boulders Mm -hmm. uh, instead of a, a perfectly sandy plane. 
Those sorts of things we can we would be able to figure out. How were you able to validate uh, this wig design? Can you talk a bit about the the tests that you configured for this? So um, I, I'm out here at NASA Armstrong, uh -huh. and and we don't have any wind tunnels. Um, so um, what what some friends came to me, and this was about five years ago, and they said, okay, if you were going to prove this crazy idea of yours, how would you do that? And um, it turns out that I said, okay, so the hardest thing to prove is that you could get this, we call it proverse yaw, where you roll and you yaw in the correct direction. Mm -hmm. um, aircraft, they all call it adverse yaw, right? You roll and you yaw the wrong direction, that's why we have the vertical tail. And student pilots are taught to use, you got to use that rudder to keep the airplane coordinated when you turn. And so um, we thought that if you could prove that you get proverse yaw, then that would prove that you're actually getting thrust at the wingtips, which means you have to get this arrow that you've had all along. And so that's what we went out and did. We instrumented, uh, we made a glider, a 12 and a half foot span glider. We actually made two of them. And we put instrumentation on there that we could measure the roll and the yaw. And we were able to get that flight mechanics information. And um, it turns out no one had ever done this experiment. Mm -hmm. And so there was zero flight data to prove that this idea worked. And now we're over an hour and a half of flight data on these little gliders. Um, we're building a bigger glider now with pressures in the, wing, in the wings and a fiber optic load system so that we can figure out exactly what we're going to get. And we're going to see that we actually get the right load and that we get the right pressure across the wing that we thought. And uh, we're also going to get the flight mechanics. That, that glider is going to fly here in another few weeks. And that's a 25-foot span. And while we were building that one up, uh, it turns out that uh, my friend Jay Dreyer over at Aeronautics Mission Directorate, Research Mission Directorate, um, he was willing to put some money in so that we could get some help from students. Uh, all this has been done with student intern labor. It's just amazing, these kids. Uh -huh. you, you tell them to go solve this problem, and, and they come back two days later, and you go, wait, that was supposed to last 10 weeks. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And uh, so uh, I, I've been doing this with these amazing interns, by the way. And then um, we got this flight data. It worked. Jay had a little bit of money uh, last year, and he said, um, what could you do with a little bit of money with the interns? And I, and I would love to do a wind tunnel test. I have my friends at Langley who have access to a great tunnel, uh, the 12-foot um, tunnel in, at NASA Langley. And uh, Jay gave us enough money to build a wind tunnel model and buy some wind tunnel time. And so we went to NASA Langley this summer, and we were able to get that. Unfortunately, it, the timing wasn't the best for the students. We did have two student interns that worked on it with us, mm -hmm. but we got uh, uh, 52 wind tunnel runs and about 6,000 data points. Wow. And what and, did the wind tunnel do? it showed exactly everything that I've been describing to you, that it's very stable, that it, it behaves very well that we get the correct roll and yaw response. I, and, and everything came out exactly the same out of the tunnel that we'd been seeing in flight. 
And so what's next now after this, this wind tunnel test? What else needs to be done? And then how realistic is it to, to imagine this in, say, the near future? So um, we had put the proposal in to actually fly to Mars to flight opportunities. So we want to prove that this can work. We, we've got a balloon launch scheduled for uh, the spring of, this, of, of a 2016. We're going to try and get close to 100,000 feet, which is about what the surface of Mars is. Mm -hmm. And we're going to fly the, the glider, uh, the actual size that would fly on Mars. Um, and that's our plan right now in March. If that works, um, then we're actually going to go up and, again, with a balloon, try to go a little bit higher than 100,000 feet and drop a CubeSat and under a parachute do the deployment of the wing, have it... Unfold, uh, spring out from the bottom of CubeSat or, or a box about that size and, and then fly away and come back. The third thing we'd like to do, and, and flight opportunities could do this, they've said they could, but it would require us to have it successfully pass those first two gates that we would go to um, a sounding rocket, go all the way to 450,000 feet, do a reentry on Earth. Um, with a, a CubeSat underneath a, a small parachute, then uh, do a, a larger parachute and, and deploy from the, the CubeSat and fly away. If at that time we were able to prove all that, then we might be ready for one of the rovers in the 2022-2024 sort of range. And um, we, we've got an appointment to go down and talk to the folks at Ames, I mean at uh, JPL, the Ames folks have promised to help us out with uh, some of the parachutes of the TPS um, and, uh, I, and some of the emission analysis. We have the wind tunnel data from NASA Langley. Um, it, this, is, this is crazy and this could actually work.